This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back to Get Psyched, everyone. I am your host, Lindsay Locke, and today I am sitting down with Roxanne McDonald, aka Spiritual AF, and she is exactly that. She is spiritual as fuck, you guys. And yes, I use that explicit term because nothing defines her more. She makes spirituality tangible. You can ditch the linen, ditch the sage, ditch the patchouli, unless that's what you're into, and get down and dirty with spirituality. Spirituality. We go through so many different topics today from getting sober at 15 to witchcraft to anything and everything in between. Roxanne is an absolute rock star. I had so much fun on this podcast. I laughed and while I was laughing really started to dive into life's deeper questions, which is exactly what Roxanne makes you do. She has both the spiritual AF and grateful AF decks that are like little personal development nuggets, a personal development book in a deck of cards, if you will, that jumpstart my morning journaling every single day. I've linked in the show notes how you can get your hands on those decks. Yes, I am saying decks as Roxanne so eloquently pointed out during the show. So be sure to head over and grab yours today. They have me laughing every morning, but also really, really diving into some serious shit. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and get ready to get spiritual as fuck with my girl, Roxanne. Where I wanted to start was, again, with your background, because I think that it is, A, like, such an incredible story and sets up for everything that we're about to talk about. So just for listeners who haven't met you before, who are dumb and not following spiritual as fuck on Instagram yet, um, can you kind of let people know who you are, what you're about, what got you started? Yeah. Um, so I am a full-time writer who does social media. <laughs> um, I, the, calling myself an influencer always still feels really weird. And I think because too, an influencer makes money off of just their social media stuff, which I don't. Um, so what do I do? I'm, um, I have an Instagram account called spiritual underscore AF. Um, and it comes from before see the last time we did the interview i was like <laughs> i had the whole spiel um what do i do i was a counselor for many years at a clean and sober high school so it was a high school that had um a counseling uh, like the counseling component was a part of the high school and um i did that for like 14 years and then when i quit i had all these students that still wanted to have support and the brand of like you know personal development and spirituality that was both playful and edgy um um, and so I ended up starting spiritual as fuck as just this way to go, okay, we can still connect. Um, and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I ended up, um, getting a publishing deal to make the decks of cards. Um, so I made these little 
what I call self-help books in a box because I always wanted to write a self-help book and I have all these proposals out um, from before for self-help books, but I was like, I want to write it with the attention span of the people I know and love, which are drug addicts and teenagers and angsty, you know, people. And so that's what I did. I, I love gratitude and I love personal development and spirituality. And so I made them in little cards, little bite-sized bits. And what I love is that so much, I love spirituality. Do not get me wrong. Like I have so much to, so much thanks to give spirituality. But what I love that you do is you, you touched on it saying like for the attention span of the people that I work with, but you make it digestible. It's not this ethereal, cosmic, like wonderlust. It's like, it A, kind of calls me out on my shit, and B, makes me laugh every single time I pull a card. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so well, I just always felt like there, oh, well, because no, the reason why I did that too is because I have been, I got sober really super. I got sober at 15 and I was, I've been a seeker ever since, but I grew up in Santa Cruz, California and Alaska and I was really turned off by spiritual people, the spiritual like um, clicks and the idea of having spirituality be your personality. And it always felt bad to me. Um, and it felt like there was access, there was access into peace and love and joy and gratitude and abundance only if you are the type of person who like naturally like talks in a whisper and, you know, does like, like likes flowing clothes and like pastels. And that's what it felt like to me. And, and, and so when I started seeking more and I would go and I would feel like an outsider, but I was also like, there's truth here. There's really, there's things that I need. And I coming from where I come from was like going after recovery and spirituality like like a feral beast like I was like <laughs> if you've got a tool that I can use I'm getting it and so I was willing to go in and be an outsider um, and not put on a performance of making it my personality because I just couldn't it just would never I've tried I mean I guess I did try a little bit like where I was like I'm I'm into meditation like I can I can talk in a soft voice for like 10 seconds <laughs> and then I'm done. And then I'm like back to this. And so that's the thing with with wanting to make spirituality and recovery and personal development um accessible for people who literally cannot make it into that like softness of what other like you know, especially alternative, like non-Christian, you know, spirituality in the US is like this kind of per certain personality that is very comfortable there. And then everyone else like is not, is, you know, yeah. not. Yeah. I know you said you got sober really young. Um, can you kind of cue listeners into what led to that? Because I think it, for me, I was like just starting to experiment with drugs and alcohol at 15, not getting sober mm -hmm. at 15. So mm -hmm. what, what was that experience like? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's funny. I'm like, I was going to say would not recommend, but I actually would. <laughs> I totally recommend it. Um, 
what what okay so i come from a family of people that are you know that are either alcoholics or they may they like go to honky tonk bars and pick up alcoholics and make babies with them and so i I started drinking very young. Like I, I was five and I knew I was going to keg parties with my cousins. I started smoking weed when I was nine. I started just like going through people's medicine cabinets at like nine or 10 and just taking any pill I could get. And I used to put them, we called it shake them up. And I would put, we would, my friends and I would go through medicine cabinets and then just bring all the pills and put them in a bag and shake them up and then like split it and just see what happened, which is, it's surprising I'm alive. Um, and I, I mean, I come from a ton of trauma and abuse. I mean, abuse is the trauma, but neglect and that whole, you know, that whole thing. And I really saw that my taste for alcohol and for numbing out was really healthy. And it was a really in like a very reasonable response to what was going on in my life. And I'm really, I feel really grateful that I had that, that, um, that alcohol and pills and all the drugs and stuff did what it did for me. But then, because I think I would have had much worse, um, mental health issues if I hadn't had that so young. And the other thing though, I think a lot of times people who don't work in young people's like addiction services will get this like pearl clutching thing where they're like, how could a child be doing drugs? And I'm like, dude, like so many kids are doing drugs at eight. Like so many kids are doing drugs at eight. And I don't think it's that weird. So uh, maybe a lot of people don't admit it or they don't aren't around people, but you know, the vast majority of my people, my, the kids I worked with, it was like eight or nine when they first started experimenting. Yeah. One of my, um, thought leaders, if you will, or, or people that I really look up to to is, um, Gabor Mate. And mm -hmm. He, when I was trying to understand addiction, because firsthand, I don't. I grew up with a single mother, you know, alcoholic that I saw it and I was caught in the ripple effect of it. But I can't say that personally I understand addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I was seeking and seeking and trying to understand what really sat with me, and it was like the first time that it made sense was when Gabor Mate said, drugs and alcohol are not the problem. They're the person's attempt to solve a problem. And so I think mm -hmm. that especially when we're looking at children and, and people that you would be like, I can't believe they're using drugs at eight. It's like that drug or that substance or that alcohol might've been exactly what kept them alive at eight or gave them even the power to sustain the trauma that they were experiencing day in and day out. Does that feel true or yeah. am I putting words where they don't belong? <laughs> no, it's true that I, I mean, it was a brilliant response on my part <laughs> to what was happening. I, I was, it was absolute self-preservation. And I think culturally we were a culture of young people doing self-preservation and I mean, it looked like, it looked like we were self-destructing and having a whole lot of fun, but that's, that, that's what I definitely feel like was happening was that it was, um, why wouldn't you do the thing that actually gives you, gives you some solace and peace. 
And why wouldn't you do the thing that makes you feel connected when you feel so disconnected? And why wouldn't you go towards a group of people that um, actually value you when you feel unvalued at, in, at home? Like all of those are reasonable responses and all of those are deeply human um, needs that are actually being met. And then the issue with habitually destructive behavior is that it, it works and then it has a price tag and that the price tag comes up pretty quick, especially with people that um, have heightened needs, like a lot of trauma, that price tag gets higher and higher and higher much faster because of your need to um, medicate and soothe. And because of, you know, I was having massive, you know, I don't even want to call it post-traumatic stress because the trauma was continually happening. So it was like I was having all these reasonable responses. Like if I was being, you know, you know, uh, physically and emotionally and sexually abused, and then I was having anxiety and I was un unable to live in my skin and unable to uh, meet my role obligations in the society, it's actually a very healthy psyche that was happening for me. I was having a reasonable response to the stressors in my life. And then alcohol and drugs actually assisted me in um, not doing, you know, other things like other kinds of self-harm and things like that. I also really liked crime and I think crime was like a big, I always like, anytime I say crime, I'm like, I'm oh, I love smiling. crime. <laughs> Anyone that can't see what's happening, there's like this like kiddish grin. I did. Yeah. I, I think that crime was, I felt so powerful with crime. And I was into, I mean, I was 15 when I got sober. So it, I, um, my idea was that I was going to be successful by doing like uh, espionage or like doing, like I, I was already running like a, a forging checks ring and I was doing um, like breaking into hotel rooms uh and i had scams like we were i can't remember all the words for all the ways i could have gone to prison but um <laughs> you know like stealing something and then returning it and getting the money back like we would i had this and i had systems where i would send one person in to steal it and they would come out and another person would go in and return it and um and so we wouldn't you know we wouldn't get caught and i loved not getting caught and that rush of that, you know, and now I'm like, for many, many years, I have been an extremely upstanding citizen. But I do think that 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 hustle made me feel powerful in a world that I was disempowered in. Mm. And, um, and, and it, of course, it, it, you know, it was, it was something that I went towards, because I was in a world that also, I didn't have remorse. I, I mean, I, I, don't know. I didn't have that much remorse. I wasn't like, because I was like, this whole system doesn't work for me. This whole system is telling, you know, is like the school system and middle-class people and, you know, whatever, all like normal people weren't, you know, weren't working for me. So why should I try to like, I don't know, why should I not take their money? <laughs> right. Why so. should I play by their rules if their rules suck or aren't? Yeah. If their rules are already straight. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. With, yeah, so, not playing a fair game. And I think that that's a yeah. huge, huge thing that so many people who haven't worked closely with addiction or, you know, has, hasn't had a loved one, which I say with some hesitation because I truly think that mm -hmm. 
anyone and everyone in this world has experienced addiction either firsthand or through a loved one or a parent or anything else. That wasn't to mm-hmm. say that parents aren't loved ones, but <laughs> um, they've been know, affected by addiction. Affected, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think that the shame piece is what so many people miss. I think that shame keeps so many people from getting sober and staying sober and not to knock the 12 steps because I think that they work for some people um, mm-hmm. and I think they don't work for other people. And what I noticed, um, you know, you and I met because I was working with Jeremy Miller, who's been on the show, shouts out Jeremy, um, at a non-traditional, aka non-12-step rehab facility. And I, for the first time, it felt like, you know, because I watched my mom relapse and then have to go back to an AA meeting and say she was 12 hours sober. And to watch the amount of shaking in her voice and in her body and this, like, it just felt like this shame cave. And Mm -hmm. what I love that you're saying and what you're normalizing is that, like, it's not a one size fits all. And when we feel powerless, we're going to seek power in in places that may seem unconventional. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I'm really curious about is what was that price tag or what was that moment? Because like I was saying, getting sober at 15 is a huge feat. Um, what was that aha moment where you were like, I think I want to, I want to start playing a different game? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, there was, a, I, I always think of it as like little planting seeds. And I think of the seed planting of making personal changes as being more like planting wildflowers instead of like, you know, making rows and hoeing those, hoeing things and planting specific ways that it's like when you're, when I was working in the field of addiction, I would just really think about, we're just planting wildflowers in anywhere we can like that. So what, what got me was that I, had I was in a peer counseling class at school that I did not externally did not look like I was like lo- loving like I just I would show up after lunch high and I would sit in it but then there were they had young people coming in and telling their stories and so there were all these you know people that were like 18 19 20 coming in and talking about addiction recovery and disorder recovery and all these different things um and so I had a couple people had come in that looked kind of like me and were talking about like, you can choose to be sober. You can go get help. You can, this is what my life was like before I got sober. And this is what my life is like now. Um, and, and so that was part of it. The other part was that um, I, I, I am a survivalist. Like, so I always like, I make the joke, like if I, if, if I'm like, friends with somebody and like we're in like a survival situation where if it's like about starving and you die I'm like I will help keep you alive you're on my team but once you die I'm gonna eat your ass before it's cold like (laughs) I will survive like I that my survival thing is very very strong and that survival thing actually is the thing that got me sober because I was watching people drop. I was watching my friends, you know, die by violence and suicide and going to prison and, you know, and, and having all those consequences. And I could see that I was on that road. 
Mm-hmm. And it was my survival instinct that was going whoop, whoop, danger, ooh, you know, um, and then the logic of going, if I do what they do, then I'm going to get what they get. And I was also with my family that I was like, I don't want to just be like all these people in my family who are getting these consequences that I don't want. Um, and I was also having that thing where I was seeing that it was that internal, um, I'm trying not, I'm trying to be conscious with my language. Um, So when, when, when people talk about denial and they often will talk about it in this way, that is how we deny our actions to others Mm. as how we perpetuate and how we can, how we can uphold our, our destructive behaviors. But the the thing that really gets me about denial is that it is um, how I deny the truth to myself And that's the thing, like when I could start to see that I was like, I would go to bed at night or pass out, but be like, I don't want to be like this. I want something different. And I would get up the next day and be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to like, I'm going to not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do crime. I'm not going to do the drinking. I'm not going to do the drugs. And, uh, and then I would by midday be so uncomfortable. And then I would often not just be like, fuck it, I'm going to go do it. It would be that I would convince myself that it was actually a good idea. Mm. And, and, and then I would come to later being like, wait, like I was like so invested in doing this other thing. And I could convince myself that the thing that was worst for me was actually a good idea. And that out of control feeling, and there's so, you know, there's all these different ways of denying, like, you know, the hostility and blaming and diversion and minimizing and intellectualizing. All of those things were working inside of me. And when I was seeing like that out of control, it was that thing of like, just wanting to peel my skin off because I couldn't live in it anymore because of that, um, how frightening it was to go, you know, it's, I, I am, I, I'm getting lost. Um, and that was coming too at the same time. And then I just had this, you know, moment of clarity where I was drinking and my mind didn't go quiet. And it scared me really, really bad. And I was like, I need to go, go do heroin. Like I was like, if alcohol stops working, then I have to go do heroin. And I knew, like, I knew at nine, I made a pact with my cousin. Like we were just going to be alcoholics. (laughs) That was our, like, (laughs) we're just going to be alcoholics. Um, And, and so I was like, okay, I, I, if, if alcohol doesn't work, then I'm screwed. And so I ended up, um, going looking for heroin and my friend showed up with a court card and said, if you go to this like 12 step meeting with me, I will um, buy you a 40 ounce of malt liquor afterwards. And I, I went and then I got this like little ray of hope and I was like, Oh, I, I can do it. And I don't need somebody there sending me to rehab or I don't need to go. You know, I had friends who would like, get caught and go to juvenile hall and then go get services. And I was, I'm way too, like, I, I, I wasn't, there was no way I was going to like get do caught. crime to get caught. <laughs> yeah. I just getting caught was not an option for me. Um, and there was nobody who was going to put me in a treatment program. I think another thing that w- that was really, really helpful looking back is that, so my, my, my mom's in California. My dad was in Alaska. Um, 
or my mom was in California, my dad is in Alaska, if I'm speaking in the right tense. Um, so I grew up partly, you know, the beginning year of years of my life was in Alaska in the wilderness. And then at 13, I started going back to the wilderness and we would spend summers like a hundred miles from the streetlight. And I had these experiences of mindfulness and quiet and, you know, that connection with the earth. And I totally, you know, I totally see that as being, um, a, a very big reason of why I was able to have the the clarity that I was having back in my life in California, where I was like ripping and running and doing crime and drugs. And so when I, when I ran programs, I would, I had a few things that I was very, very clear on about, I wouldn't work at a program unless we had a component where we took people out into the trees at least once a week and then went on multiple night overnights out in the wilderness. And then also we had to serve food because I, I don't think you, I think it's ridiculous to try to, especially kids to like build community without a sandwich. It's like, like give them some oatmeal, give, you know, like we need, we need to sit down and eat together. But uh, I, I really saw a huge difference when, when we would be in trees and out in, out in nature. So. Yeah. I noticed that so much because I was working at the treatment center as I was going to school to get my master's in counseling psychology. And I remember going in to classes and we'd talk about different things that were going on and so many people were reporting just these, what felt to me very sterile. Like if I were to walk into an agency or an office and everything was smelt like Clorox and was like white coats and clipboards, I would not, that would probably traumatize me just as much as the trauma that I was about to go talk about. And I would talk to them about how my sessions were going. And granted, I worked on more of the fitness side of things when I was working at the treatment center, which, you know, that's a whole other story about that introduced me to trauma and being stored in the body. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm not teaching people how to squat. I am addressing childhood trauma because it's stored there. And this is the first time these men and women have felt confident in their bodies again. And so I felt like I was doing myself a disservice by not being trauma informed and not understanding basically like the, the huge grasp that my position had at this facility um, mm -hmm. off of that tangent and back, it felt like the addiction counselors were so much different than the therapists that I was training with. Is that something that you have recognized throughout your career in, in counseling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, I, I had a, as a, as a client, I had a real aversion to therapists. If you had letters behind your name, I didn't want anything to do with you because I had so many experiences growing up, like in and out of child protective services, I'd have these people and it was, it was sterile and it was, like putting, you know, all your books and learning in between you and the humanity in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I had no patience for it whatsoever. Um, and then running the programs, we would get uh, interns. And I got to a point because I mean, it's like a lot of people end up going to therapy school because they haven't dealt with their shit 
and they luckily more and more schools for <laughs> for uh, especially you know people going into the you know marriage family therapy and even social work schools are like requiring that people do some of their own work to to graduate but a lot of times they really don't and they're bypassing or they're coming in it, not or and they're coming in trying to do this i'm going to get um, I'm going to be able to save other people because that tells me who I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so I would interview and I would have the kids interview people uh, before I would even take on interns. And one of the requirements for being at the school was that you had, you can't impart what you don't embody. And so we would do our staff meetings were, uh, were what we, you know, what we were trying to get the kids to do in the sense of challenging ourselves and being vulnerable and showing up and doing the work. And like, I would tell people like, I, you know, you can't come here you can't, you can't continue to do this if you aren't dealing with your codependency or like, we're not, you know, all that. Like there's just so many instances of, of people, of us having as the, fa as the, as the staff, um, having to do the things and be and embody what we're wanting the kids to get and what we're wanting our clients to get. Um, yeah, I think that um, that physicality and food, I, I, I think a lot of times I, I have like coming from poverty and within the coming from within the system, I have a very low tolerance for how we treat people in those situations. And so I um, saw a huge difference when I shifted our perspective to we were giving customer service and, and I, and not, we are providing a service for these poor people. And so when when I put my foot down and was like every single person who walks in that door gets greeted and offered a, some sort of nourishment. And so when anybody walked in the door, no matter how busy we were, we would, somebody would say, hello, would you, uh, how are you? Would you like a cup of tea? Can I get you a snack? And it changed everything. Like the entire, I mean, we were, and we were working in a counseling agency that was getting like police officers bringing kids in and people and, you know, and, and it, and, when I made that like just an absolute policy, our, 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 you know, our success went through the roof, our community, you know, people were staying longer. We were getting a lot less like, you know, freak outs in the lobby and stuff. And, uh, and it's, it, and it's, it, it was interesting because all these people who had these savior complexes had, excuse me, I burped. <laughs> if you talk too long, that is going to happen. Um, they would have these savior complexes, but then when you were, when I was like, that's bad customer service. And then they'd be like, oh, I'm a therapist. And I was, this isn't customer service. And I was like, everything thing you do is about customer service. Like when you're in the office with them, having your session with them, like you, they are a customer, <laughs> like you treat them. And so my thing was that they need, we needed to act like we were like at the Ritz Carlton that and the the concierge at the Ritz Carlton is not going to let you shit on the lobby floor so they're going to hold boundaries but they're also going to be providing every single thing that they could do to give you the very best experience and the very best outcome that you can have and so when when we shifted that because all of our services were free so we were getting the people who needed free services but when i demanded that we be like heavy on customer service people started talking about their feelings. <laughs> people started being able that. to cry. People yeah, because people enough. were treating them 
with dignity yeah. and honor. Yeah. I, I think I have an opinion about that. <laughs> <laughs> you might, you might say so. Yeah, that was, you know, cause when I got brought into the treatment center, I was brought in as, as a coach. It was like, Hey, mm-hmm. we're planning to build this gym and, um, and we want you to kind of help us out with the floor plan. We want you to coach classes and you'll meet with the clients one-on-one throughout their program um, to talk to them just about fitness and nutrition and kind of bring in this like active lifestyle into treatment. I was like, okay, cool. I can do that. I've coached for a long time. I can talk about nutrition. And then I was getting into one. And I don't know if it was because I was a person that wasn't technically like treatment team or I didn't, something about my face just said, hey, tell me about your trauma. Um, But I would get into these one-on-one sessions and it would start with like, you know, how have the workouts been? How's your body feeling? How are you sleeping? And it would turn into you know, this was my, this was my sexual abuse as a child. I've never felt comfortable in my body. I have a really hard time working out in front of people now because of it. I have, I'm actually afraid of losing weight because if I become quote unquote more attractive to the opposite sex, perhaps, you know, advances like that could happen again. And I was like, holy shit. Like I was ready to come in and teach you guys how to squat. And I got called into the clinical director's office and I'm shaking. I'm like, what, you know, like it doesn't feel good. And it's like, uh, can you come see me later this afternoon? I'm like, sure. And the director was like, Hey, I know that you've thought about going back to school. I know that you're interested in this. Um, and you're getting data that other people on the staff are not getting. And it, it wasn't like a, what are you doing? But it's like, if you really are serious about this, like you should, you should go get informed and learn how to actually sit with it and know what it is that you're doing. And I appreciate my program so much because it was a three-year program instead of two, because every single thing we did was experiential. And it was like, you are only going to help people as much as you have sat and sifted through your own shit. There is no way that you can sit in that other chair if you don't know what it's like to sit in it yourself, or if you don't know how scary it can be for a stranger to say, all right, we're going to, we're going to drop inside. We're going to close our eyes. And if I'm experiencing extreme trauma, the thought of closing my eyes with a stranger is like, like hell you are right. Like, like hell you're going to get me to close my eyes. And so I, think it is so important exactly what you're saying that like I was a thousand percent the wounded healer that was out to like save the world and the day my teacher said hey are you in this because you want to feel good about the fact that you're helping people or do you actually want to help people I was like shit (laughs) here we go here's more of the work to do um so having been exposed to this hyper chamber of spirituality in Santa Cruz and the people in white linen and this idea of what spirituality should be air quotes should be um knowing that there was some truth in it what led you down that path what got you to a place where you're like I'm gonna look past the linen and I'm gonna do this my way 
I, I mean, I think that survival thing uh, played a role in it. I think that uh, that when I when I realized that I didn't have to join anything, even if people told me I had to join, I could just get I could take their tools and use them. Um, and when I got really I got really comfortable. I'm not a joiner. Like you know, I have. I've been a, I've been a member of a 12 step group for 30 years and I am not like, I don't, I am the one being like, what the fuck's wrong here? <laughs> like, I'm not, a, I'm not a part of this. <laughs> like, we're not, I'm not doing this, you know, like I am not the, so that I felt like, I also felt like I had like service was a big deal for me and, and has been since I got sober. And so me being able to go in and access these places and then bring the tools back out for my friends who could not stomach it or wouldn't have been welcome because of how they look like I really did see, I mean, I was a, I was a young person that like all my friends were like getting their whole bodies and faces tattooed. And I was like, ah, uh-uh. like I'm, I'm too much of a criminal. I'm going to pass. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to go, I'm going to be able to go in and hide. And so I do, I show up as this like pretty white girl and I, so that could like, you know, figure out how to go in. And so I felt like that, I felt like I was infiltrating to be like, (laughs) I'm going to come out and I'm going to like, I'm going to like bring like, this is how you deal with energy and stuff. And then I could speak my own language. Um, I also think that there were people that were able to sit with me. There was, you know, there were um, interns at my school that showed up and didn't like they, you know, maybe like I'm thinking of like a specific counselor that really saved me. And she, the first time she met me, like she, she walked in and had a notepad and like walked into a group. And like, I was like, what's the notepad for? And she was like, um, I'm supposed to take notes. And I'm like, what are we, your little, like, like little lab monkeys? Like, are you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to do a test on us? And then she was, you know, and so she just like met this and I was like, God, you fucking people. And then she went, okay. And she like put the notepad underneath her chair and was like, I think I should probably just get to know you and chill out. And she did. And then she was like, I mean, she's like high priestess lady. And then she had us do all this stuff like where she was teaching us, but we didn't have to, we didn't have to speak like her. We didn't have to want to wear, you know, the, the fucking robes or whatever. And, and so I could see that there was this, um, there, I could have access without having to join. And that's really the, you know, the, the thing for me that one of my messages with my podcast, with the decks, with my, all my social media platforms is that I think that there's this idea that other people have that it's like, if I, if I practice witchcraft, that suddenly I have to go join a coven. And it's like, I'm never going to join. I mean, I'm not going to join, period. I'm just not. But I can, I can practice witchcraft or I can, you know, I can learn about energy cords and, and healing ancestral wounds without becoming a part of a community that has to talk about it. Not that I don't think community is great, but I'm just way more picky about my community. And, uh, and, and that you're not going to get swept up. Like I, I have so many of my friends who are outwardly are such like shithead doofus skeptics, but then they come to me and they're like, so Roxanne, you know, when you were talking about that, like, um, chakra meditation, like I was doing it, you know, And, (laughs) and I had this amazing experience and I was like, dude, we're alone. You don't have to whisper. And, but they're so like, they like the, that 
they think if they're too open about it, that somehow that that's going to, that's just going to get taken over and then they have to be a spiritual person, which I'm like, we're all spiritual. That's the reason why I call people fuckheads all the time. Cause I'm like the most spiritual thing I think I can do is just always be honoring that a new flavor of fuckheadedness shall come up in me. And I am, I can lovingly greet it and integrate it and into, you know, into a way that I can have integrity. And so to not get a past that we're always going to be a fuckhead at some point it's, and, and if we lose that, like that, we're all just, we're all gonna, we're all gonna be like, you know, showing up with some level of fuckheadedness that it's, it's like to just notice that it's like, we're all spiritual. We're all, we're all loving entities that are learning and growing and changing. And we're all fuckheads. (laughs) And that, and I think that's too, whenever somebody tries to be a leader, yeah. anytime somebody's trying to be a leader, like I will have mentors, but I have never had like a guru or my teacher. Cause I'm always like, anytime somebody acts like they're not a fuckhead, like I'm like, if you're not pointing to your asshole, I, I don't trust you. <laughs> if you're not, I am a fuckhead. I look, I am no better, no worse. If anybody does that, it's like such a great red flag for me. And I, so I just, it's been that's been helpful for me. And I think that's why I think I can speak to spirituality and therapy and personal development to a certain group of people because I am so openly like, (laughs) poop's funny. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't think it is, get out. (laughs) So funny. Always. Uh, I have, you had, a lot of pushback from the spiritual community that we keep talking about from the linen wearing spirituality looks like. (laughs) Oh, that's the reason why my, my uh, Instagram is named what it's named. We were, we, I started it with the, the teacher of the school and she, after about a year, she went back to teaching, but, um, we had different names and then we would be like about recovery and sobriety. And then we would put something like that. Was not like, on brand for like soft-spoken spirituality and people would be like, that's not very spiritual of you. And I was like, Oh, there's so aren't you supposed to be spiritual? And so then that was like one day where I was like, you know what? I'm fucking spiritual as fuck. Like, you know, you know what, you know what spiritual as fuck? Like showing up as a whole human being in this world trapped in this meat sack with this ego and this brain, like I am here and this is spiritual. And so then we changed the name to spiritual as fuck. And that's one of those things like even now where I like people, people will be like, Oh, I thought you're that if your name's spiritual, then you should be like, you know, anytime I like call people out or like I address things, I think most of the people on my pages now, like know what, know the brand, but now like, you know, like, I don't know, like I, I'm not afraid to like come out and be like, that's stupid and shitty and you shouldn't act like that. And, and people would be like, shouldn't you just completely transcend because you're spiritual? And I'm like, are you lost? <laughs> <laughs> no, like, so. Yeah, I get a lot of pushback. Or I get a lot of people being like, you know, they should you can you can't teach meditation and say fuck as much as you or be as like energetic and you know, or aggressive. Like I think there's this idea that you're gonna become spiritual and then you're go you're, you know, 
you're not going to have any kind of uh, intentions or emotions or anything. And that's just not me. Well, it's not you and, and I feel like if, if you're saying, can't you just be bigger than it? Can't you let it wash over you or whatever it is? It's like, and, and let that person know that it's okay to treat me like shit. Let that person know that I don't have a strong boundary. Like, I love that you call people out, especially on the internet. Because I feel like the internet is so full of trolls and probably the least spiritual place that you can be. So I appreciate the spirituality that you bring to social media. But I want to, because you can't just throw witchcraft, practicing witchcraft and not joining a coven into our conversation without me asking, what is it that the witchcraft is that you're practicing? You know, it's funny because Jeremy, was, I listened to Jeremy's episode and I was like, dude, you're just like, because he, he said it like twice, like Roxanne's a witch. And I was like, man, like <laughs> I have like deep witch wounds, like where I'm like, um, so what do I, <laughs> um, on the, oh, and I'm, I, I can't, I'm so afraid of being burned at the stake. Um having agency over your thoughts and your intentions is witchcraft. So cognitive behavioral therapy is witchcraft. Being curious, addressing, does this repetitive thought, does this way of thinking and responding and, you know, is it a reaction or a response? That to me is witchcraft. Like a a curious, conscious um, addressing of how we engage with our, uh, you know, mind and body and our lives. Um, so a lot of my practice is really about setting intention and understanding what is it that I, that I want, like really want. Um, most of the thing I most, I think most people are having, um, a lot of their discontent and disease in the world because they are unwilling to truly investigate what they really, really want. Um, so that's a big part of what I do. And then, you know, the idea of spell casting is like simply having a physical representation of what you truly want. Mm. And so anything that's going to um, represent you getting clear and then placing your actions and thoughts and habits in line with what you really want. So it's real basic. It's not, I mean, I think, of course, there's, there's uh, stuff that, you know, in, in traditions of witchcraft that I don't do, but the very basics are like, when I light, you know, I do a lot of candle lighting and I, I do it with prayers and with meditation um, and I will light candles for friends. And I just think it's just a physical representation of like, if I put together like a, a series, like put some oil in it and I burn something and I maybe put uh, some herbs in this candle and then I hold this energy for that person, simply just me sending goodwill and, and ease or whatever it is that I'm wishing for them into the world and into, and hopefully to them. And, um, and, it doesn't always like I think that we we discount how actually just pragmatic that is that 
um, that holding somebody in your thoughts is going to actually affect them. Because even if, even if it doesn't, uh, like, you know, even if we just get away from the science of that all things are energy, um, just the act of like me generating um, a clear intention for others and for myself is going to affect the way I engage with the world and what I see. So like manifesting a lot of time, you can really see that you're like, if I believe that there is an opportunity for this in my life, I'm going to probably be way more open to seeing it when it's there. And when I don't believe, and when I haven't even been willing to say that I truly want that thing or that opportunity, I'm going to be blind to it. And so, yeah, that's that. And then, you know, that the, the, um, the, yeah. And then there's like, I worship the moon. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a cauldron in 14 no, I just, in my back room. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I've like, I, I have, yeah, whatever I was going to go. Um, I think you using just like the earth and the, the, the cycles of the earth as a way to remind ourselves to be in gratitude and admiration of what we do have. And that's like a, standard pagan thing of like noticing that you know, what what the days are like in winter and noticing the night sky and having them be there having there be tradition for ourselves about when do I honor the calling in of things and the releasing of things and when do I honor times where um, I I should be resting more and times where I should be out making things and that kind of stuff and it just helps to keep me on track. So I definitely, you know, I do do a lot of my scheduling around, like, um, if it's a new moon, then I'm going to be spending the evening doing new moon shit. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're, they're all just ideas for me. And it's, I think with, like, I think people get, um, they think that if you are, like, the, Joe, who I do the podcast with, even though he knows me well, he kept saying like, oh, will you practice Wicca? And I'm like, I 100% do not practice Wicca. Like Wicca was created by a dude. It's like a whole religion. I am not a religious person. Hell no, you know? And, uh, and I, think, um, I think that that, that is a uh, patriarchal Christian-based idea that's put onto um, people just simply trusting themselves and creating ceremony and, um, and tradition, which is really helpful for a human body and psyche and experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I really tried, I talked about this on a show the other day, when I first got introduced to personal development and spirituality in this whole world, I was like, I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to do all of it. And it was exhausting after a while. I was like, I can't do all these things. I can't possibly wake up early enough to drink all the water I want to drink in the morning and walk outside barefoot. So I get the positive ions in my feet and I'm getting like vitamin D exposure. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to stretch and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to do Kundalini yoga. And then like, it was so exhausting and it was, I couldn't do it. And mm -hmm. the reframe that I used, cause now I do a lot of those things. I know I just kind of talk shit on them, but I do a lot of them. <laughs> um, the minute I changed the language from my morning routine to my morning ritual, it felt like I was mm -hmm. 
getting to do something for myself instead of having to do it or making myself do it. So I think that the power of ritual is so, so, so important. I mean, if we want to tie it back to addiction, right? Like the habitual side of things, the ritual side of things, like try to give up something that you love. Like I love coffee. I love getting up in the morning and filling my French press and the smell and counting down the minutes till I get to push down the little, the little tamper and doing all the things. The minute I cut out Mm. caffeine and I lost that ritual, my mornings felt different. My life felt like it set me up differently in life because I had completely lost Mm -hmm. this ritual. So I think that there's so much power in exactly what you were saying. Like you don't have to practice. Mm -hmm. Was it Wiki? I've never heard that, but you don't have to. Wicca. Wicca. Uh, Oh, Wiki is like Wicca. Yeah. Duh. Lindsay, come on. (laughs) Jeez. So you don't practice Wicca, but you do <laughs> ritual. And I think that that's incredible. Um, one yeah, I think of it more as hygiene. Yes. I think of it as hygiene. So that I, I'm more, just like I brush my teeth, I need to be consci- conscious of my energy and my intention. And so that's, for me, it's like waking up make you know saying some prayers lighting a candle spending some quiet time um you know i i make coffee and i make it into a little potion that's filled like i fucking press sparkles into it with my hands and i'm like it's going to be filled with self-love and with service and you know peace and then i drink that shit down but i consider it all hygiene and it is on the same level as brushing my teeth and washing my butt crack wash <laughs> Wash my butthole and get my spiritual <laughs> stuck on. <laughs> yes. yeah. So one thing I wanted to do, I have your deck. Uh, spiritual as fuck, grateful as fuck is actually right next to it, but I grabbed spiritual as fuck oh. first. I wanted to pull a card. Yeah, she said deck. Deck. Said deck. Not, I pulled your deck. Dick. Not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to grab a card. And just get your interpretation of it. Get how either what mindset you were in when you wrote it, what it is you wanted to get through because of it, um, and maybe just how it's landing with you today. How's that sound? <laughs> Good, yeah. Well, I haven't pulled this one, and I already love it. It says, fuck out of here. And on the back it says, this is your mantra today. Say it in a New Jersey accent to add emphasis. If bullshit shows up, give it up. Fuck out of here and send it on its way. In parentheses. This should probably be a silent mantra at work and school, but pretty much anywhere in public. But it's still highly fucking effective, even when you keep it all to yourself. <laughs> love that. Um, Tell me more. Uh, so, huh? I said, I love it. Tell me more about it. Yeah. So a lot of, there's a few of those cards in there that are love letters to my friends. So I have a close little group of friends. And so that one's a love letter to my friend, Noelle, who's my hairdresser as well. And um, she comes from New Jersey stock. And so we were, you know, talking and she, somebody was acting like shit and she just kept being like, fuck out of here, fuck out of here. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I practiced it as like a, 
as a way to get through this difficult time where it just every time somebody would just come in with their fucking trash at me and I'm like that's trash behavior fuck out of here and that's the card so that's my little love letter to Noelle and my thank you to to her for giving me that and it gave me permission to just be like fuck out of here with your bullshit like fuck out of here and um yeah and it, I think that it, um, it, it was one of the most powerful spiritual practices that I, I've really ever learned. It's just to be like, I release you. I release you back into your fucking whatever fucking realm. Fuck out of here. You know, not like I have to get in there and fix you. Not whatever. Fuck out of here. <laughs> yes. I'm so excited to say that in a New Jersey accent for the rest of the day, okay. probably for the rest of the week, probably for the rest of my <laughs> life. I'm so excited. Um, Roxanne, yeah. this is amazing. If people want to get their hands on this deck, they want to get a hold of you, they want mm -hmm. to connect, how do they do that? Mm -hmm. um, so the spiritual is fucking grateful as fuck decks are available. It, the, if you go to knockknockstuff.com, that's the publisher. You can also get them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. If you're in Canada, you can get them in Indigo books. Um, and they're all, they're, they're, they're all over the world. I think they're still at, um, urban outfitters, but I'm not sure. And you can find me at spiritual underscore AF on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm way more on TikTok now. Um, and then you can also find uh, me at my podcast, spiritual AF or whatever. Amazing. And honestly, you guys, <laughs> Roxanne's TikTok is the reason I have TikTok. I don't really quite know how to use it except to creep <laughs> her profile and love every second of it. So <laughs> thank you so much. I will be linking all of that in the show notes. Be sure to head over, check out spiritual underscore AF, check out spiritual as fuck or whatever podcast. Roxanne, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lindsay.